This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. This is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And even if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great. Thank you, Anna. And um, tonight we have the privilege of hearing, not from me, but from Matt Williams, our, our intern, your intern, and he's going to be um, bringing us the word tonight. So Matt, if you want to come up here and I'll put my mask back on and I'm going to pray for Matt and um, we'll get to hear from him. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are so kind to us that you're not silent, but that you speak to us. You speak to us in your word, and we pray now as Matt um, opens your word to us that you would show us Jesus. Would you open our hearts to him, and would you speak your grace and truth to us that we would see you and have life in you. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, John. Uh, I'm going to take my mask off, too. It is good to be with y'all. I've got reading glasses because I technically have a lazy eye. It's a whole thing. Um, (laughs) I'm going to pray for us again, uh, and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, thank you for the chance I get to read your word, um, to others. I pray that you would speak through, um, your word and what I've prepared and that it would be a blessing, uh, to wake forth. Ask this in your name. Amen. So I was talking to John about this passage, and he referred me to a kindergartner's wisdom. Uh, When Leo, who's his son, was in kindergarten, he was taught about the difference between being a bucket filler and a bucket dipper. The idea is that everyone has a bucket, and if you love and serve someone, you're a bucket filler. But if you hurt someone, or you're rude, or maybe you're even just needy, that makes you a bucket dipper meaning that you're dipping your cup into someone else's bucket and taking from them. And I think the kindergartners were right because imagine a bucket full kind of day. When I was in college, for me, a bucket full day was when I got an A on the paper and the professor not only gave me the A, but they also wrote a bunch of nice things in the margin about my writing. They dumped into my bucket. It was when my classes didn't feel like they were asking too much from me. uh, And it was when I got to spend time with friends who loved me. Now, in contrast, a bucket empty kind of day. This is a true story. There was a random Tuesday in the first semester of my senior year of college. Uh, It was 8.55 a.m. and I had to go to class where the professor, they asked too much of us. 
and they never thought that we did enough. Uh, before class at like eight in the morning, I had to plow through the reading, which of course was too long. And not only did I have to bike to class, I had to bike to class in 40 degree weather and my fingers were about to freeze off. It's also a true story. I got on my bike, started riding and realized that somehow there was a hole in my tire that hadn't been there the night before. So I get to the bottom of a hill, still far from the class building because UNC is a lot bigger than Wake, uh, knowing that I wasn't going to make it to class on time and that my teacher was going to think that I was a bum. We are all either bucket fillers or bucket dippers. We are all either giving or taking, being given to or being taken from. We are serving or consuming, loving or losing, imagining what our friends can become and delighting in that, or thinking about what my friends can do for me. And that brings us to the text on turning the other cheek and loving our enemies. And I wanna ask three questions, three questions of this text. Questions are, who are our enemies? What do we let our enemies do? And how do we let our enemies do it? So the first question, who are our enemies? In, the two, in these two sections, Jesus talks about how we should, one, relate to the evil person, that's verse 39, followed by how we should relate to our enemy, which is verse 44. It's different language, but Jesus is referring functionally to the same person. It's just when he references our enemy, he's personalizing it a little bit. And this actually poses a problem for us. Because you could ask yourself the question, who is my enemy? This is an easier question for Christians in countries that are hostile to Christianity. For example, if we had to keep the volume of our services down for fear that the government would bust through the church doors and arrest all of us, it would be a little easier to see who our enemies are. And we could also think of enemies out there, uh, like the Democrat is the enemy of the, of the Republican, the Republican is the enemy of the Democrat. But when we try to personalize it, when I ask myself the question, who is my enemy, I draw a blank. It doesn't seem like anyone I personally know actually fits the criteria for being my enemy. Um, my contention is that at this point in the semester, when most of us are drained from classes, we're worn down by COVID, we've realized that we've committed ourselves to too many things and we're always running from one extra thing to the next, our enemies are the people who would take from us. They're your professors who would give you another assignment when your schedule is already packed. They're your friends who really need to talk when you really don't have anything left to give. They're the clubs or campus ministries that you signed up for and were really excited about, but now are sucking that one last free night out of your week. To put it another way, at this point in the semester, when our bucket is running dry, our enemies are the bucket dippers. They're anyone who would dip into my bucket and take my precious resources. And as a caveat, that's not necessarily saying that your professors or your friends or your campus ministries are actually against you, that it's not saying that they're trying to plot your harm and bring you down. But if we're gonna ask the question, who is my enemy? At this point in the semester, we perceive anyone who would take from us as our enemy. So as we're looking at the rest of the passage, as a way to apply Jesus' teaching to us, when he's talking about the evil person or our enemies, let's consider that person as a bucket dipper. Which brings us to the second question. What do we let our enemies do? The short answer is, let the bucket dippers dip. Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Well, let's back up. Where had Jesus' audience heard that it was said that? Well, Jesus' audience heard that from the Old Testament. 
Jesus is referencing a law that told God's people how the justice system in their community should run. And commentators point out how this law was ironically designed to restrain people from taking vengeance on each other. One commentator says this, the context makes it clear beyond question that this was an instruction to the judges of Israel. Its purpose was both to lay the foundation of justice, specifying the punishment which a wrongdoer deserved, and to limit the punishment to an exact equivalent and no more. It thus had the double effect of defining justice and restraining revenge. So it limited justice because if you knocked out my tooth, a judge can sentence you to death, meaning the punishment had to fit the crime. And it restrained revenge by taking justice out of our hands, out of the hands of the individual, and putting it where it belonged in the court. If you knock my tooth out, that is some, that's something wrong and you do deserve to be punished for it, but I'm not the one to take that out. It deserves to be in the realm of the court. So this law was actually meant to abolish personal revenge. But the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, screwed it up. Over time, they began interpreting eye for eye, not as something to define justice for the courts, but as the very thing that it was meant to restrict, which is, if you knock out my tooth, I'm knocking out yours. It took justice from the place where it belongs and put it where it doesn't belong, in our hands. Now, the reason this is so dangerous is because the eye for an eye comes so naturally to us. It works simply, like growing up, one of my friends and I would always do slap bets, which is where if I lost the bet, he gets to slap me. And every time he slapped me, and keep in mind, he did not hold back, there was this strong, automatic, and unexplainable desire where I wanted to slap him back as hard as I possibly could. It just happened. I didn't have any control over it. I, he slapped me, I wanted to slap him. But normally, normally, we're more civilized about it. I haven't knocked out anyone's tooth lately. And so it's a little hard to imagine how eye for eye actually plays into a place like Wake Forest where we're all very kind, very nice. I don't think anyone's knocked out anyone's tooth on campus lately. If they have, I just haven't heard about it. There's a TV show called How I Met Your Mother that puts this in a little better perspective for us. In one episode, they argue that we all have a pit person, a pit person who is someone who's hurt us either last week or last year and who we're internally so angry with that we could throw them in a pit. Now, mind you, this is not to kill them. It's just to trap them so we can be the ones who are in control over their lives and we can be the ones who can exact revenge and make them pay on our terms. We're normally not brave enough to do anything like this in real life, but if we remember Jesus' teaching on anger from last week, though we might be nice to them in person, we can still murder them in our minds. And so after watching that, I realized a recent pitch pit person for me was a neighbor who yelled at me one night when I had friends over because one of my friends, one of my friends blocked a shared driveway. And so at 930 at night, he came out, was yelling his head off, yelled at me, my friends, called his children, the whole nine yards. Uh, he genuinely slapped me in the face, though he didn't do it physically. Um, and outwardly, I stayed calm and I didn't retaliate. But inwardly, I wanted to denounce him for the wrong that he'd done and make him pay on my terms. He became a pit person. And so because we naturally have pit people and because we naturally want to hit back, Jesus has to make this correction. In verse 39, he says, 
do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If someone knocks out your tooth, don't knock him back. Let him knock out the other one too. Or if someone tries to take from your bucket, let them. This might sound like you should just roll over and become everybody's doormat. Do not resist evil could sound a lot like just let evil happen. And I think it's fair to keep in mind that this verse has been used in that way, it has been used to excuse an apathy we have towards uh, sins that our friends commit or towards sins that we commit in more broadly. Um, we could use this as a way out to actually not engage with evil. Um, but I'd like to argue that when rightly understood, just let evil happen couldn't be farther from what Jesus is trying to say. Another commentator puts it this way. Jesus is saying that instead of leaning on our natural instincts, which are, if someone hits me, hit them back, or if someone shouts at me, shrink away, instead of going into fight or flight, Jesus is saying, stay right there and do something surprising. I had a good friend from college. I lived with him for four years. And one of the ways that he related to people was insults. You might know someone like this. You might be this kind of person. Uh, and he said that it was the way that he showed affection and that he meant that if he insulted me, it was actually a sign of love. Uh, but what that meant was that if I would walk into a room, a lot of times he would just say, hey, Matt, I hate you. Hey, Matt, you're an idiot. Hey, Matt, your haircut makes you look like a 1950 soldier. That one stuck a little bit more than the others. He would hit, and for a while, I tried to hit back. But one day he came downstairs and said something to another one of my housemates, like, hey, you're an idiot. And in the moment, instead of trying to hit back, that housemate had the wherewithal to say, hey, I love you. It knocked him off his game, and he didn't know what to say. Because in that moment, instead of trying to hit back, my housemate stood right there and did something surprising. From then on, when he would hit, we would all respond with, hey, I love you. Hey, I love you. So when Jesus says, do not resist evil, he's not saying just let evil happen. It actually doesn't take much strength of character at all to give into fight or flight. That's our natural impulse. And hitting back in kind actually just infuses more evil into the world. It takes a holy strength to stay right there and do something surprising. Which brings us to verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So not only are we to dump our bucket into our enemies when they try to take from us, we are also to actively look to see where our enemy's bucket needs filling and respond accordingly. If do not resist evil means stay right there and do something surprising, love your enemies means go after someone and do something surprising. Now, what could this look like? Uh, let me tell you the story of Daryl Davis. I watched him in a Netflix documentary. Uh, he also has a TED Talk, apparently a three-hour podcast with Joe Rogan. Um, but there's this Netflix documentary called Accidental Courtesy, and it follows Daryl Davis, who's an African-American musician who came up alongside the likes of Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. Uh, if you know the song Johnny Be Good, this is the kind of musician that we're talking about. After he retired, he took him an odd hobby. He would travel from Memphis to Alabama to Ferguson, Missouri, 
and he befriended members of the KKK. Now, he didn't try to argue them out of it, and he didn't try to punch them in the face with how they were wrong. He just realized that most KKK members had never actually met a black person. So he did something surprising and introduced himself. As their conversations developed, and as KKK members became friends with a black man, they started to change. A lot of them, though not all of them, gave up their membership and turned in their robes. And in a second, we're going to show what I think is one of the most powerful clips of the entire documentary, but I'll give it with a caveat. In both examples so far, in terms of my housemate and in terms of Daryl Davis, staying right there and doing something surprising has resulted in our enemies changing. And it's important to note that that's actually not why we do it. In Jesus's, in Jesus's example, there is no indication that the person who tried to steal a shirt had some kind of moral conversion after the man offered his cloak as well. We don't do something surprising because we think it gets results. We do it because it's what our father does. In verse 45, Jesus says, the reason we do this is that we may be children of our father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We are members of the kingdom of heaven and we want to participate in the life of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why we do it. Even still, when the kingdom of heaven breaks into the world, cool stuff starts to happen. Zach, could you play the clip? In this bag, I have three of the robes in my collection. This first robe belonged to a grand dragon. Grand dragon is a state leader, top man in the state. And grand is signified by the green. This fellow wore a dragon patch. Under his green cape is another dragon patch. This grand dragon preferred the satin. This is the robe of an imperial wizard, the top guy. This is a white cotton robe with blue adornments, blue stripes, blue sash, and blue cape. And of course, you see the clan emblem, the Mayoke. This is the hood. It's often called a helmet. Members who want anonymity, they don't want you to know who they are, they wear this mask and peep at you through these eyelets. How many robes like this do you think you have? I know. Uh, it's hard to say. I got a bunch of them. Um, a couple dozen or more. You know. They each represent a different person. Yes. That is correct. Do not resist evil and love your enemies does not mean just let evil happen. It means go after our enemies and do something surprising. And I wonder what this could look like for us at Wake Forest. Helpful questions could be, who are your pit people? When you hear that term, does someone come to mind? What would it look like to move towards that person in love and to dump your bucket into theirs? As a ministry, we can actually be encouraged because we hear stories all the time of how y'all pour out your buckets for others. Means, that means that RUF at Wake Forest is participating in the kingdom of heaven. But there is also a challenge. Who are the people we close off our buckets from? Is it people who don't look like us? Is it people who we don't naturally click with? A helpful question in prayer could be, God, 
are there places I feel like you're calling me to go or people who you're calling me to meet? The answer will probably take you outside of your comfort zone. And yes, this also means something for us politically. If you're a Democrat, do you give your conservative friends space to process their political beliefs with you, or do you just shut them down? If you're a Republican, are you willing to move toward your Democrat friends in love and to be curious about what they believe, or do you just write them off as ignorant? I'll ask you again. Are you a bucket filler, or are you self-protective of your bucket and you only give to people who you feel like deserve it? And that brings us to our third question. We've already answered who are our enemies. They're the bucket dippers. And we've already answered what do we let our enemies do? We let the bucket dippers dip. And that brings us to the third question. How do we let our enemies do it? And honestly, it feels like a weird challenge. It feels weird to challenge you to dump out your bucket at this point in the semester. I started this sermon talking about how a lot of y'all are probably feeling like your buckets are already running dry. And it's not that you don't want to give, like you genuinely do in a lot of cases. You've given all that you've got to your professors, your friends, your family, your group projects, your papers. And when it feels like your bucket is really empty, people just keep dipping and dipping and dipping. So let me ask you, at this point in the semester, is the hammer dropping? Are you being asked to give resources that you really don't have? Is your bucket really empty? Do, do the professors who are supposed to be educating you and giving themselves to you feel like they're trying to suck the last little bit of life from you? Does it feel like your friends are your enemies who are just threatening to take that last little bit from you? Does it feel like you're crumbling under the pressure of all that you have to give? Is your bucket really empty? And there's actually another way to phrase all those questions. Do you feel like you're poor in spirit? Have you been mourning and crying out under the burden that's crushing you? Are you feeling meek when everyone around you is telling you to be strong? Are you hungering and thirsting for some relief? If you are, welcome. That's a Christian life. And thankfully, thankfully, the answer that Jesus gives isn't to dig down deeper into your bucket and find some water that's not there. Ironically, we find some relief in the last command of this passage. And it's a command that sums up all the commands that we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount so far. It's in verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Some other translations even put a little more thrust behind it. They say, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this verse really screwed me up when I was in college. Uh, in the same semester where I ended up at the bottom of a hill with a flat tire and a professor who was thinking that I was a bum, my bucket was seriously empty. It was first semester of my senior year and I was overworked, I was job searching, and I got to the point where I was suffering from some pretty acute anxiety by the end of the semester. And I was, what was happening was I was crumbling under the weight of all the standards that I was trying to keep up. I thought I needed to be a good student, that I needed to minister to my friends, that I needed to get a meaningful job. And Jesus's words here were like an undercurrent in my life, just telling me over and over and over again, you must be perfect. And in the moment, even though I didn't realize it, what was going on inside of me was actually I was revolting against that. My response was something along the lines of, be perfect? Are you kidding me? 
I've got to dig down deep and pour out every last little bit that I've got. It's that this verse to me ratcheted up the pressure. But in this verse, there really is relief. The word perfect is the Greek word teleos. Now this is generally understood to mean perfection only in the sense that our teleos is what we were made for. It captures the idea of finally being whole. Like our teleos is our goal, our end, everything that our life is moving towards. If you're a philosophy major, here Jesus is talking about our telos or our ultimate end. So then, what is our life moving towards? And I'll ask that question a little bit of a different way. What's the best night that you've ever had? One of the nights that I knew my relationship with Susan could be something special was a couple nights into us dating. She was in a sorority in college and I got to be her date to a cocktail. Um, and I was nervous because I knew that my blazer didn't fit, that cocktails, which are giant social events, aren't really where I feel most comfortable with. And I knew that there was gonna be a lot of dancing. And if you know me, you know that dancing is the quickest way for me to embarrass myself. I didn't grow up dancing, not a good dancer, another long story. But that night, even though my blazer didn't fit, and even though I didn't know how to dance, Susan and I got to talk, I got to meet a lot of her friends, we got to take a lot of really cute pictures together, and we danced and danced and danced. And it was genuinely beautiful. It was two people who were falling in love with each other, moving together out on the dance floor. Tim Keller argues that our life is moving towards a dance. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit have been dancing for an eternity. They've been orbiting around one another in a dance of self-giving love, moving in and out of each other, praising, enjoying, and delighting over each other, eternally filling one another's buckets. And we were created out of an overflow of their love. We were invited into their dance. And the tragedy of our world is that we turned from God into ourselves. We chose to dance alone. Yet the story of the Bible does not end up with us finally digging deep in, into our buckets and clawing our way back into the dance. Instead, it ends with heaven descending to earth. Jesus brought the dance down to us. So when you feel poor, when you feel crushed, meek, and you're hungering and thirsting for something that will satisfy, Jesus does not tell you to dig down deeper into your bucket and find water that's not there. He invites you back into the dance. And the invitation is open. If you're already united to Christ, the spirit is already in you. The dance has already begun. So put out your bucket and see if Jesus doesn't fill it with a river of delight and love that he has for you. Your suffering might not go away, but at least you'll be swept off your feet and back into the kingdom. And if you're wondering how do I put up my bucket, as I've been talking with Susan about this over the week, something she started doing is literally extending her arms like she's putting out a bucket and asking God to fill it. And I think we can trust that God has filled that bucket. And just maybe, maybe, just maybe, when Jesus fills and refills your bucket, maybe your professors, who still might be giving you way too much work, maybe they'll feel a little less like enemies. 
Your friends might be people who you love and enjoy without fear of your bucket running dry. Your suffering won't go away, but you'll be in the kingdom. Your life with Jesus will feel a little bit less like a burden and a little bit more like falling into the deepest refreshment that you could possibly imagine. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that um, your teaching from this passage would sink deeper into all of our hearts. Um, I ask that you would prompt us to put out our buckets and to seek refreshment in you. Um, and as we do in faith, would you meet us there? Um, and would you fill our buckets? And for all the students here who really are struggling, who are feeling crushed under the weight of all that they have to do this week, would you be close to them? Would you fill them? Amen. Before we go out tonight, um, before we sing the doxology together, I want to send us out uh, with a word from our God in heaven. You have a king in heaven who loves you, and he sends you out with this under, he sends you out under the banner of his love. I mean, the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Amen. Go in peace.